0: Thank you so much for tuning into our podcast. You honor us by listening in, and we're grateful for you. Um, Before we begin, I just want to encourage you to not let this podcast replace the local church in your life. God has designed it so that we are to join a local church and serve that body of believers and be shepherded by the pastor of that church. And that's something no podcast can give you. And so, if you're not involved in a local church, let me encourage you to find one as soon as possible. Enjoy our podcast. Open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1. We began looking at Revelation last week. Um, as we worked our way through it. Last week, I actually read chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Tonight, we're going to do 9 through 20 of chapter 1, so there's going to be three verses that are overlapped there from last week um, as we get started. You know, you would think people have a problem with Jesus, but they really don't. They don't have a problem with, um, with, with Jesus. Um, that they have no problem with the Jesus in their own making, somebody that they have in their own making. Uh, People love a peace embracing Jesus. um, Someone like Gandhi. People love a Jesus who helps them find their real you. Something like, you know, Oprah might talk about. Um, People, if you've ever seen somebody wear one of those t-shirts that says, Jesus is my homeboy. People love a Jesus who is, um, who is their homeboy. Um, People love Jesus. That's why the most immoral people will say that they like Jesus. They just don't like the Jesus of the Bible. Um, Revelation is going to give us a real picture of who Jesus is. The, this passage that we're going to look at is possibly the most beautiful description of Jesus in the entire Bible. It will leave you speechless. It is far above anything anyone tries to describe Jesus as, and we need this kind of Jesus. So let us now take a look at the king and his beauty. Revelation 1, I'm going to start in verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things you have seen, those that are, and those that are about to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. I spoke with you heavily last week about how this book can't be understood apart from persecution of the church. That revelation can't be understood. If you don't understand, John is writing to Christians who are being heavily persecuted. They're being persecuted. Um, You know, there in verse 9, Paul, John says, I am your partner in the tribulation. And so we often talk about the tribulation as something off in the future, a seven-year period at the end of history. Um, The tribulation, though, is not just something far off in the future. It's the story of the church. If you study the history of Christianity, it's been the story of Christianity since the beginning, that the church has been persecuted. John is writing Revelation about 95 AD, roughly. Um, some people would say it's actually written in the 60s. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about that later on. But, but, um, but, but John, I believe, is writing Revelation in 95 AD, about. So, so you're looking at about 60 years after the resurrection of Jesus, 65 years, give or take. Um, at that time, the, the, the Roman emperor in that time was a guy named Domitian. Domitian was... Um, He was just an ogre of a man. Like, he was, he was short, he was ugly, he was chubby, he was not good-looking. He, he had a wart on his forehead, and, and, and when he would have a conversation with you, he would stand there and pick that wart literally until it bleeds. <laughs> Isn't history fun? Um, but the thing is, Domitian would have statues made of himself, and um, those statues looked nothing like him. Like like those statues had, you know, he's muscular, he's tall, he's handsome. You know, the statues didn't include the, the big hairy wart on his forehead. He looks awesome. Domitian wanted everyone to think he was a god. And so people were required to worship the emperor. Um, you can research actually and find, we, we still have statues available of him from that time. And they're hollow. So... They're hollow so that a priest could get inside, and he could talk to the people to make them think this was um, some divine thing, that he was a god. For most people, in that time, worshiping the emperor wasn't a problem, because they were polytheist. What's a polytheist? Poly means many. Theist is belief in God, someone who believes in God. So... They believe in God, they believe in many gods, polytheist. And when you worship multiple gods, you know, you don't really have a problem adding one more god to the mix. Um, But Christians are monotheist, one god. Christ alone is our god, we don't worship anything else. So the Christians would have been seen as committing treason against the government, against the Roman Empire, to not worship the emperor. The Roman Empire would have treated them as traitors. So they would have been imprisoned, beaten, and killed for for staying faithful to Christ. And so in this time, Christians have to choose one of three options. They have to either lie about their faith and say, I'm not a Christian, you know, worship privately, serve Jesus privately, and say, I'm not a Christian. Kind of the opposite of what we 're supposed to do we 're supposed to bear witness about Jesus. they would just you know stay quiet, but you know they would still be required to worship the Emperor in that case you know it wasn't just Christians that had to worship the emperor, it was everybody um, so they could lie about their faith, they could compromise their faith that is, they could bow down to the statue of 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 domitian and and go through the motions and pretend like they're worshiping um And they might think in that time, you know, God knows my heart. I'm not, I'm, I'm going to be killed if I don't do this. I'm going to be killed if I don't worship the emperor. So I'll just do it. And I'll just pretend like I'm worshiping. That um, They can compromise their faith and do that. Or they can be faithful to Christ. They can be like Daniel, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and, and say, we're not going to bow to Nebuchadnezzar, even if we get thrown into the fiery furnace. So they had to choose between one of those three things, lie about their faith, compromise their faith, or be faithful to their faith. This is the context John is writing to Christians in, just an intense time. Verses 10 and 11, John is told to write to the seven churches. Um, It says that John was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. The Lord's day is Sunday. Um, th- this is the, actually the only explicit reference to the Lord's day in the entire New Testament. But if you read some of the early Christian writings, like right after the Bible was completed, um, the Lord's day is referenced a lot. So understand how it was. Um, the Jewish people worshiped on Saturday. That's what Sabbath means. Um, Sabbath is the seventh day. Um, For them, it would have been Saturday, technically is the seventh day because on the calendar, you notice Sunday to Saturday. Um, so, So they would have worshiped on Saturday, but Jesus rose from the dead on Sunday. So Christians then began to worship on Sunday. They called it the Lord's Day. That's why we worship on Sunday, because it's the Lord's Day. John says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's Day. John's going to say in the book of Revelation that he was in the Spirit four times. Um, Used to be how I outlined the book. I don't outline it that way now. Um, The the, the in the Spirit experiences of John, I think it's actually arranged differently. But John is going to be in the Spirit four times. You've got chapter 1, verse 10 right here. Chapter 4, verse 2, he will be in the Spirit. Chapter 17, verse 3. And chapter 21, verse 10. Um, It's similar to how the Old Testament, when when it says there he's in the spirit, it's similar to how the Old Testament, um, God would pick up a prophet like like Ezekiel. He would pick him up in the spirit, drag him over here and drop him and say, write what you see. That's what's going on here. It's very similar. Um, John is told to write to seven churches, and he gives a name for each of them. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Um, Next week, we're going to look at chapters 2 and 3, the letters to those seven churches. So so we'll get to those next week. Um, Ephesus is the church we see in Acts 19 and 20. The Apostle Paul went there. Um, Ephesians, the book of Ephesians is written to it. Um, John was likely the pastor of that church at some point. Um, He probably took Mary, the mother of Jesus, there and took care of her. um, Because we know from the cross, Jesus told John to take care of his mother. And so from that point on john took care of mary Um, so they both probably went to ephesus and stayed there Um, john eventually does get released from patmos where he's writing revelation and he goes back to ephesus and he dies there Um, the other six churches there um, we don't really see them in the new testament outside of revelation i I don't think um, i I scoured my mind and did a little research and i don't think we see them anywhere but the, the way they're arranged here, they're arranged as a postal route. So, so John would write this letter. He would send it. A messenger would take it to Ephesus. The pastor there would read it to everybody. He would give it to the messenger. The messenger would take it to Smyrna. The pastor would read it, and you get the idea. Um, it's the postal route counterclockwise um, around the circle. Um, so these churches are facing intense pers- opposition, persecution. And Jesus offers them encouragement at the beginning. He's putting this vision of himself here at the very beginning. How does he do that to, for them, give them encouragement? He does it by revealing himself to them, showing them who he is. So, verses 12 through 16 there, just this glorious picture of Christ. Um, John sees seven golden lampstands. Each is a light to the world. Um, that, that's what the church is called to be, light in the darkness. I don't need to tell you we live in darkness. Just, just check the internet for five minutes. Watch the news for five minutes. Like, we live in darkness, and we've always lived in darkness. It's just more televised now. Um, we're to shine the light of the gospel into the dark world. That's what the church is called to do. We're, we're to shine the light into the dark world. I think I failed to mention the seven lampstands represent the seven churches. So the seven churches are lampstands to the world. Um, however, what's been the reality of a lot of churches is that they have retreated from the world. They've stayed in their own little bubble and never engaged the dark world. And then complained when the world go, is continuing to be dark. But the world is dark. It, 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 has, it has been dark from the beginning, and unless we shine the light of the gospel in it, it will remain dark. It just will. If we don't take the light to it, it stays dark. But it's striking what happens here. Um, in the Old Testament, the Jewish people were compared to a lampstand. So the churches are called a lampstand, the Jewish people would be called a lampstand in the Old Testament. Moses constructed a 7 branched lampstand in Exodus 37. Um, Zechariah had a vision of, seven, of a seven-branched lampstand in chapter 4 of Zechariah. R- represent the Jewish people. And that's one of the key components of the book of Revelation. Um, the, it, it's this idea that runs throughout, and I'm going to show you several times as we work through it, that the church... That is, the blood-bought sinners by by, by Christ who um, exist all over the world, they are the new Israel. That's a theme that runs throughout the entire New Testament, very heavily shines out in Revelation, especially when we get to chapter 7 in a few weeks. Um, They're the new Israel. So in the Old Testament, God had a people that was all one nation descended from one man. They were all the same family, descended from Abraham to to Isaac to Jacob. Jacob was renamed Israel, and all of Israel's descendants were the people of Israel. Now, in the New Testament age, the people of God are all those who put their faith in Christ, Jew or Gentile. That's always been the plan if you read the Bible. Romans 9, 6, and 7 actually says that not all who descended from Israel are of Israel, that Israel is the, ch- is the saved people of God. Um, but, but Romans 9 says that not all who are blood related to Israel are a part of that people because it's by faith. It's not by your blood. It's by your faith. Um, it's important for you to know that because a lot of times when Revelation is taught um, or, or when Revelation is talked about, um, people will make a distinction between Israel and the church. Um, as if God has separate blessings for them. Uh, especially when we talk about the end times. There's a lot of times that, that there's like this really big important blessing given to just the ethnic Jewish people, and then the church is just kind of put to the side over here, and they just kind of do their own thing. But the New Testament's like over and over, the church is the people Christ loves. Like the, the people he has saved with his blood. Way more. Um, so I don't agree with the with the viewpoint that that they're two separate entities, I think Christ made them one new man. That's what the book of Galatians says. He made them one new man. That is, by faith, Jewish and non-Jewish people become part of the people of God through faith. So then maybe we ask, what about all those promises made to Israel in the Old Testament? Those got to be fulfilled, right? Well, yeah, I, I think they were in Jesus. I think Jesus is the recipient of those promises. If you read the Gospel of Matthew, like it's just incredible how much it's, it's taking the life of Jesus and making it represent the story of Israel. So you think about it. Um, the very beginning, there's a genealogy all the way from Abraham to Jesus and shows how he's a descendant of the Jewish people. And then you, you have basically the entire Old Testament story played out in the life of Jesus. So you have Joseph, his father, having a bunch of dreams, um, which is like the son of, Isaac, the son of Israel. Um, they, they have to make a flight into Egypt because Herod is going to kill all the kids under two years old. You remember that happening in Exodus? And then you have, um, you have them coming back out, and Jesus grows up, and he gets baptized. He goes through the water, like, you know, like the people of Israel did in the parting of the Red Sea. He immediately goes into the wilderness after that. And how long has he spend there? 40 days, 40 nights. The Israelites spent 40 years in the wilderness. He's out there. He's tempted um, to, to give in to the devil. He does not do that the way Israel did. He leaves the wilderness and he goes up on a mountain and he gives something like a law. Like, you know, how Moses went up and got the Ten Commandments. And then the, the entire book of Matthew is actually arranged in five sections. We know that because at the end of each section, Jesus teaches a really long discourse and um, so it, what, what are there five of it for the Jewish people? Well, the books of Moses. There's five books of Moses. Matthew is arranged around those five books. Um, so I think very clearly Matthew is showing Jesus as the recipient, the recipient of that. He is, the, um, he, he is the true Israelite. He's the one who fulfills those promises. And now we can be descendants of um, the, the people of Israel through faith in Jesus. So seven churches, seven churches, remember we said last week the number seven represents um, completion, perfection. Um, so, so the seven churches are seven real churches, but they absolutely um, represent all churches. This is the message of Jesus to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, but it's also his message to all churches, to Mount Zion, to um, Brookfield Baptist, to First Baptist of Titai, Tai, to... Um, the Oasis Church in Arizona, where my friend Scotty pastors, to all the churches I was involved in in Kentucky, like that. This is the message to all churches. This book. And notice, verse thirteen, in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. He's he's walking among the lampstands. Isn't that incredible? He's the God of the universe. He could be walking among the galaxies, like he could be walking through the quasars out there in space. He could be, you know, walking across the Pacific Ocean right now. He could be juggling planets back and forth in his hands. He's walking among his churches. That's how important his people are to him. That much. He is among us as we worship. He's among us as we suffer. We don't have to beg for His presence. Uh, I get really frustrated when people say, you know, God really showed up in that church service today, because that's not how it works. If there's people worshiping and they're filled with God's Spirit, God's there. He doesn't have to show up. Um, he's there with you always. So we get to this, all these descriptions of Him. We're gonna work our way quickly through each one of them. I think there's nine details of Christ here. Um, but he's called the Son of Man. He's walking through the, through the lampstands like a son of man. Um, Daniel chapter 7 is, is that reference. We're going to read that in a minute because it flows through this entire chapter. But Daniel 7, there's the Son of Man who comes to the throne of God. God gives him authority over all nations, um, very clearly referencing Christ. We'll read that in a minute. Um, the Son of Man is Jesus' favorite self-designation for himself in the Gospels. During his life... He called himself Son of Man more than anything. Eighty-one times in the four Gospels he calls himself that, way, that, that term. Um, Jesus is described in a fascinating way here. Um, but I just want you to understand that, that these details are not meant to be like a snapshot of him. Like, it's not like you take a picture of this and, and you can see this. Um, th- these are symbolic Old Testament descriptions all applied to Jesus to point to who he is, to show us his glory. Um, I'll show you how these, these things can't be literal. Um, Verse 16, in his right hand, he held seven stars. So he's got seven stars in his hand. Verse 17, he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. So he's got seven stars in his right hand, right on John's forehead. Like, ouch. Oh, one One more verse 16, he's got a sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. Well, then in verse 17 through 20, he talks. So he's got a sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth, and John's standing there listening to him, and he says, hurrah! I was and the last. It, it doesn't work very well, does it? It's... It, um, It's it's meant to be a, a, a symbolic picture of who Jesus is to show us his glory. This is sort of like how you, when you describe something beautiful and it's so beautiful you can't put it into words, like that's what's going on here. Like imagine I gave you a pencil and a paper and I sent you the Grand Canyon and I told you sit on the edge of the Grand Canyon and just watch for two hours and then tell me and then describe it to me, describe the glory of the Grand Canyon. It'd be very hard to do. You know, so I love my wife. Have you seen my wife? She's beautiful. She has gorgeous hair. Like her hair flows out of her head like a waterfall. It's just incredible. Her smile is so radiant that it could literally light up the night sky. Like her eyes are crystal clear, clear as a swimming pool. Like I love it when she wears the color red. It looks like a sunset over the skies of Chula. Now, if I were to draw that out for you, would that be pretty? a waterfall, waterfall coming out of her head. She's got swimming pool eyeballs. She's got, like, fluorescent teeth and a sunset on her body. This description of Jesus isn't meant to be drawn out. It's meant to be gazed at and to stand in awe of. It's less about taking a snapshot of it and more about knowing the essence of who Jesus is. Um, This vision is glorious. Hear how theologian William Hendrickson spoke of it. Because I just think this is incredible as I was studying for it. Notice that the Son of Man is here pictured as clothed with power and majesty and with awe and terror that long royal robe that golden belt buckled at the breast the hair so glistening white that like snow on which the sun is shining it hurts the eyes those eyes flashing fire eyes that read every heart and penetrate every hidden corner those feet glowing in order to trample down the wicked that loud reverberating voice like the mighty breakers booming against the rocky shore of Patmos, that sharp, long, heavy, great sword with two biting edges, that entire appearance as the sun shines in its power, too intense for human eyes to stare at, the entire picture taken as a whole is symbolic of Christ, the Holy One, coming to purge his churches and to punish those who are persecuting his elect. Like, wow. So let's work our way through each, each detail very quickly. Um, we see first he's clothed in a white, in a, in a long robe. That's representative of priests. Priests wore long robes. Everybody else wore cut off robes. Um, it's just that reality that Jesus is the great high priest. He's the fulfillment of the high priest in the Old Testament. He offers up payment for our sins on the cross. And then he intercedes for us Forever at the right hand of God. He never stops making a defense for you to forgive you of your sins. Never. He's got a golden sash around his chest. Again, that's, that's imagery of a priest. It's coming from Exodus 28, um, where we get a description of the priest's garments. So he's, he's being represented as a priest here. He's got hair on his head, white, like white wool, like snow. Um, I think several things probably come out there. His holiness, it's white and pure. Um, His eternity, that is he, um, white hair represents age. um, So he is forever old. We know Jesus has always existed in eternity. Next, his wisdom can be seen there. Um, You know, we're a culture in America that, that values youth and runs from age. Like we do everything we can to fight against our wrinkles and our gray hair. Um, but most cultures value old age. They're the people that are wise. They're the people you learn from. Um, and then finally, his divinity, Daniel chapter 7, which again we're going to read in a minute, there God is described as having white hair like wool. So, so an attribute of God there is taken and put on Jesus here. Um, he's got eyes like a flame of fire. That will appear again actually in... Revelation 19.12 at the description of the second coming of Jesus. Um, he, he can see you. He's got fire burning through everything. It's, it, fire consumes everything. It burns through. He can see through everything. He can see the suffering that you're going through. And he can also see into your heart. He knows who you are. You can't hide anything from Jesus. He's got feet like burnished Bronze. That's um, got a lot of things bound up in it. Permanence. It's this everlasting burnished bronze. Um, it's also the altar. Um, the altar and the utensils in the Old Testament used for temple worship were made of burnished bronze. So, so you got that going on there. Um, it's also conveying stability. He is stable in all seasons, he does not get stopped by the change of seasons. He can stand strong, he will not be taken down. But again, it's, it's descriptions of God. Um, Ezekiel 1.7, God is described with burnished bronze, and, and the Son of Man in Daniel is described with burnished bronze. Let's look at that passage in Daniel 7. Hold your spot in Revelation 1. Daniel 7. This may very well be the most important passage in the Bible regarding, in the Old Testament, regarding Jesus Probably a toss-up between this and Isaiah 53. Um, Daniel 7, I want to read verses 9 through 14. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were open. I looked I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, that's referencing a beast. And as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beast... and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. It's clearly a picture of of when Jesus rose from the dead, he was given all authority over heaven and earth, uh, an Old Testament description of what's going on there, um, with with an echo of what is to come in his second coming. Um, this, This vision is over and over applied to Jesus in... Um, Revelation 1 here. I need to mark my spot in case I need to go back there. Um, it, oh, the, the book of Revelation is screaming out, as the rest of the Bible does, that Jesus is God. He is equal with God. He is God. Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons don't believe Jesus is God. If they come to your door, understand that they have a view that Jesus isn't God. He's a created being. He's the per, first and perfect created being, but he's not God. They have a different translation of the Bible that um, changes most of those passages about his divinity just a little bit. Just enough that it might not... You might not catch it if you were just reading it, but but it's the case. Um, Except for Revelation 1. You ever have a conversation with a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon? Turn to Revelation 1. Because their Bible has all of these descriptions of God described about Jesus. It's there. So... This just, this passage just shows them that Jesus is described as God in the Bible, even in their messed up translation. Um, He's got the voice like the roar of many waters. It comes from Daniel 10, 6, voice like a multitude from God. Um, Jesus is powerful he's more powerful than anything you can imagine and his voice roars out like like the ocean Um, you know sometimes in Adrian and I's house I'll be in the kitchen and I'll have the the water running at the sink and she'll be in the living room just around the, the, the door and she'll say something to me and the water's running I can hear that she said something but I can't I don't know what it was so I have to turn the water off and say what was that The same as if you're on the beach and, you know, the water's crashing in really loud and somebody's, you know, 20 feet away from you and they say something to you, you may not be able to hear it because the waves are crashing in. And That's the kind of thing that's going on here. Jesus' voice shines out over everybody else's. But then at the same time, with that ocean, it's peaceful. You sit on the beach and the water's coming in, it's calming. So there's an authoritative voice here and there's a... There's a peaceful voice. He's got seven stars in his right hand. They represent the seven, the, the, the seven angels of the seven churches. We're going to talk more about that next week, so I'm not going to touch any on that right now. Um, but it suggests ownership. The, the, the messengers of the churches, he holds them in his hand. They're, they're his. He's got them. Jesus holds the churches in his hands. He holds our church in his hand. And here's the deal. You don't have to fear the government shutting down the church. Jesus has us in his hands. And even if they take away our building, we're still going to meet somewhere. Because he doesn't, because Jesus is sovereign over the government. Jesus holds us in his hand. He's got a sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth um hebrews four twelve would describe the word of god as a sharp two-edged sword that pierces bone and marrow divides things um, so carries that idea also carries the idea that's going to be later seen in the book revelation 19 15 at the second coming he'll have this sword coming out of his mouth and he will use it to to slay the beast and the false prophet second um, thessalonians 2 um, says jesus will slay the man of lawlessness with the breath of his mouth We'll get into all those images as we move through the book, Um, but it's just simply the Word of God is like a sword that that does that. And then finally, he has a face shining like the sun in full strength. Again, that's from Daniel 10.6. If you remember in the the Gospels, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up on the mountain, and um, he's transfigured before them. Um, Moses and Elijah appear around him, and his face shines like the sun. Just, just think of that. His, his face changed like the sun. It's, um, let, let me actually look at Daniel 10.6 just to know how that reads. Um, Daniel 10.6. Describing the Son of Man, his body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. So it actually says the appearance of lightning there, so I'm sorry for mentioning that. But, but um, it's just this idea of the, the bright glory of Jesus shining from his face. It's just this phenomenal image of Jesus. So incredible, so majestic, so glorious, and we stand in awe of it. And so John sees this, and he falls at his feet, verse 17, as though dead. I mean, it's not that he, like, bowed down on his knees, because that's what, what you're supposed to do when you see God. It's like he was so overcome by this image, he just fell on his face like a dead man. He, he falls before him and can do nothing but worship he's overwhelmed he can't move and this is the this is the response that we see from so many people in the bible when they see when they see god face to face happens to ezekiel Happens to Daniel, it happens to Isaiah, happens to Saul of Tarsus when Jesus meets him on the Damascus road. They they always fall down as though dead because the king in his beauty can cause you to do nothing but fall before him overwhelmed. But Jesus tells him, he looks at him and he grabs him and he says, Fear not. Fear not. I am the first and the last. I'm the first and the last. Chapter 1, verse 8 says that he's the Alpha and the Omega. Understand the Alpha and Omega are the first and last letter of the Greek alphabet. It's the same as saying, I am the A and the Z. Um, I I am in the beginning and I am to the end. Um, This is also a reference to Isaiah 44, 6 and 48, 12 Um, It's an attribute of God that he is the first and the last. Jesus is God. He's the one who created the world. He's the one who is actively moving history to play out for his purposes. And he is the one who will wrap up history. You can trust him. He's in control of all nations. He's over history. He's reigning and ruling on his throne. And he will not be stopped. He's the first and the last. He then says, I'm the living one. I am the living one. I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. Points back to verse 5. Jesus Christ, the firstborn of the dead. That doesn't mean he's born as we are. He's the first one to come out of the grave. He's the first one to rise from the dead. Um, Our resurrection will follow his. He is the first. He is alive. He's had his death and resurrection happen, and that gives him full authority. His authority is tied to the gospel message. Um, You know, you get to the end of Matthew, he's risen from the dead, his disciples go meet him, and what's he say? He says, I have all authority in heaven and on earth. All authority. It's all mine. Authority doesn't belong to any government, to any nation, to any army or king or president or emperor. It belongs to the one who defeated death forever. Death is the only enemy no one has been able to conquer except for Jesus. In fact, 1 Corinthians would say the last enemy that's going to be defeated is death. It will be done away with. He says, I have the keys of death and Hades. Uh, He has access to life and death. He has power over them. Christ controls when someone lives and when someone dies. He controls the womb and the tomb. He's in control of all of that. And so with that, with this picture of him, he tells John to write. He says, write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are about to take place after this. Um, It's here that a lot of people assume this is an outline to the book. I I don't hold to that, that, that this is an outline, that you write the things that you've seen, the things in the past, um, that was chapter one, the things that are current, so chapters two and three, the seven churches, and then the things that are yet to come, chapters four through 22. Um, as I told you last week, I, I think this book is actually um, divided in, in cycles, it tells the same event over and over and over, the first coming to the second coming of Jesus. Um, and so that's, that's not an outline that I see, um, because first of all, I think there's future things in chapters two and three. And there are present things in chapters 4 through 22. And he also says that um, that these things are about to take place after this. So it's not this idea that 4 through 22 takes place thousands of years later. It's it's like these things are about to take place. And they're going to continue playing out as if this is describing the time between the first and second coming of Jesus that they would have seen and known. Um, But also, I think there it's... Write the things that you've seen. So you've seen all these things. You've seen things that are now and things that are going to take place. So write them. I think that's what's going on here. Um, Verse 20 obviously goes in with chapters 2 and 3, so we'll get to that next week as we look at the seven churches. I hope this picture of Jesus leaves you in awe. I hope it leaves you speechless. John begins his revelation... uh, Of this book, um, he begins his revelation like this so that the Christians will be encouraged to be faithful in persecution as the Roman Empire seems to dominate them, as Roman officials come into their church gatherings and drag them out and take them away, and they never see their family and friends again, as as they see Christians crucified in the street and burning on, on sticks to light the city, as they see that, they need something to keep them going keep them faithful. Is it really worth it? Yes, it is. To start it all off, these churches need to see Jesus, and we need to see Jesus. Revelation is pulling back the curtain to show you who Jesus is. Does the view of Jesus that you have inspire any shock, any fear, any awe? I hope so. Because that's what he does to John. That's what he does to Ezekiel and to Daniel and to Isaiah and to Paul and to every person who's ever seen his face. Um, So often people have a weak faith because they have a weak Jesus. They have a Jesus who is their homeboy, but not their king. They have a Jesus who's more about making their life awesome rather than causing awe and wonder from them. You need a big Jesus. You need a majestic Jesus. You need a Jesus who's bigger than Domitian the Emperor and the entire Roman Empire. You need a Jesus who's bigger than all of your political fears right now, that we all have fears for the state of our country. You know, let's just play that out. Let's play out our biggest fears for our nation. You know, let's play this out. The wrong person gets elected. Um, Our nation descends into socialism and then communism. Life as we know it is ruined If all that happens, do you have a reason to live? I hope so, because this image of Jesus hasn't changed. He's still reigning on his throne, even if the worst scenario plays out for us. He was still reigning for these Christians getting dragged away and crucified, and he will still be reigning no matter what happens for us. Yeah, life will be a lot more terrible, but but he's still reigning. It's nothing the church hasn't faced before. You need a Jesus bigger than all of this. You need a Jesus bigger than COVID-19 and all the civil unrest right now. You need a Jesus that's bigger than cancer and marital problems and rebellious children and depression and anxiety and stress. You need a Jesus bigger than all the problems of your life. And my fear is that most Christians don't have that Jesus. That's why the worries of the world grip them so much. If you want that Jesus... Open up to Revelation 1 and behold the King in all of his beauty. Let's pray together. Father, I come to you and I thank you that Jesus is incredible. He is glorious. He's majestic. And may we stand in awe of him. May we see the Savior lifted up, the Lamb who reigns in splendor. He's the hope of every tribe and tongue and his kingdom last forever and ever. No one will stop him. Even if all of us in this room die tomorrow, he's still the reigning Lord. He's still glorious in power. I pray that you give Macedonia Baptist Church that hope. I pray that you give Tift Avenue Missionary Baptist Church that hope as they've both lost their shepherd. Oh God, help them to look to Jesus, the good shepherd. God, help us to, to see this Jesus to gaze at his beauty and to be transformed by that, that we may live faithful for him in our lives, shining the light of the gospel into the dark world. Oh, how they need it. How they need it, Lord. Help us to be faithful, to endure to the end, and to stand in awe of Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.